That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Happy Friday, Shabbat Shalom, Juma Mubarak, whatever it may be for you, TGIF. Oh, this just breaking from the New Yorker. The special counsel, Robert Mueller, just called Donald Trump to tell the president that he was, quote, the most innocent person ever, end quote. Trump told, uh, told this reporter. It was just the middle of the afternoon, and he just picked up the phone to say how innocent I was, Trump said. He said I was the most innocent person he'd ever come across, and maybe in history. He'd been all over all the evidence, and that he and his staff would spend hours just looking at each other in amazement at how unbelievably innocent I was, Trump said. Right. It goes on from there. You can uh, guess. Uh, it's Yeah, it's Andy Borowitz in the New Yorker. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, he's so innocent. Anyhow, it's Anything Goes Friday, so anything that you would like to talk about, feel free to give us a shout at 202-808-9925. And, uh, but I've got a few stories here that I would like to share with you. Um, for example, we have, you know, one of the things that the vast majority of Americans, I would bet 99% of Americans who don't watch this program or listen to this program, um, don't understand is how... CEOs and senior executives get insanely rich. And I'm talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, how they get insanely rich with stock buybacks in publicly traded companies. And uh, just a, a real quick recap. I've done this you know, a couple of times here, but it, it, I, I don't think it can be said enough because it takes a while for people to really get it. Say you've got a company that is worth a billion dollars and has a million shares outstanding, a million shares of stock for a company worth a billion dollars. Okay. So each share of stock is worth a hundred dollars. Now there's, there's different ways you value companies and, you know, price to earnings ratios and percentage of sales and all that kind of stuff. But set all that aside for the moment. Let's just say there has been a valuation. This company's worth a billion dollars. It's got a million shares. Therefore, every share is worth a hundred dollars if I'm doing my math right. Right. Or no, every share would be worth a thousand dollars. Because a billion is a thousand million, right? Okay. So every share is worth a thousand dollars. Now, let's say you're the CEO of the company and your company made, let's say, for example, hang on, I have an actual real number for you. Let's say your company, oh, in this case, 
It was two and a half billion dollars last year. Uh, well, we can't use that example because we've only got a billion dollar company. Um, so let's say your company made $300 million in profits. And your company is a bank. But I want to talk specifically about banks. Now, that $300 billion could add to the value of the company. It could be, well, if you're a bank, you could use that $300 billion to lend. You know, it's, it's, it's now money in the bank at the bank, right? It's profit. So the bank could roll that money back into, into its operating capital, and it could lend out 10 times that, $3 billion worth of, of, of money. It could, you know, it could lend, it could literally invigorate the economy. However, because the senior executives are compensated with stock options, and the way a stock option works is, uh, say I work at this company, the shares are selling for $1,000 a share right now. Uh, as part of my compensation, I get the deal that I can, I can take stock options anytime during this year, and then I can turn them in anytime next year and, and sell them and uh, only pay a maximum 25% income tax because it's a capital gain, right? Or 20% income tax because it's capital gain. So it's like super good money. So what I do is I instruct my company, instead of lending out $3 billion based on that $300 million of capital, I instruct my company to take that $300 million and buy back shares. Now, there's, there's a million shares out there. It's worth a billion dollars, so 300 million. So we're buying back about one-third of the shares of the company. What does that do? It raises the stock price by about a third. So that $100 share of stock is now selling for, you know, 100 plus a third of 100, uh, you know, $130 or $1,300 a share. So then I take my stock options that I got at $1,000 a share, and I sell them at $1,300 a share. I make a $300 profit on every stock uh, certificate I've got and say I get, you know, a million of them a year. Uh, so, you know, you can, or, or a thousand. Anyhow, you get the, you get, you get how it works. A CEO of a bank has a choice. When the bank makes a profit, they can either use that profit to stimulate the economy by doing what banks are supposed to do, which is lend money out to people. Or they can take that profit, buy back shares from the company, have the company retire shares in the marketplace, reduce the total number of shares in circulation, which raises the value of all those shares. And then the, and then the executives cash in the shares and put the money in their own pocket. So basically the CEO of, and this is true of any company in America, and this is a game that every single, as far as I know, every publicly traded company that I've looked at is playing. This is the new way to make money in America for the CEO class is, they, is they, they have their company do share buybacks, which inflates the value of their stock options. So they walk away with hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and, but what the company does doesn't grow, doesn't expand, doesn't help the economy, doesn't hire new people. If it's a bank, doesn't lend more money to people. It basically screws everybody in America except the CEOs and the senior executives and the, and the major stockholders. Now, this is all a result of changes in tax law during the Reagan era. But to, to give you a clear, frighteningly clear example of this, this comes from a fellow by the name of Thomas Hoenig, H-O-E-N-I-G. I'm not sure exactly how he pronounces it, but if he were pronouncing it, you know, the, in the German would be Hoenig. Uh, it's probably Honig or something like that. Anyhow, he was the, he was the vice chair of the, or is 
the vice chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation right now. He's the number two guy at the FDIC. Um, before that, he used to be put on the Fed. And he sent a letter to the Senate Banking Committee Chairman Mike Crapo and, or Crapo and the committee's senior Democrat, Sherrod Brown. And Reuters is reporting on this. And in his letter, he pointed out that the 10 largest banks in America took 100% of their profits. And instead of using that money as additional capital that the bank has that it can use to loan money against, simply bought back shares and inflated the paychecks of their CEOs. The worst was J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon's bank. They made $2.5 billion last year, used it all for share buybacks. Uh, this, is, this is all, by the way, according to an article on Wolf Street, uh, Howling About Business, Finance, and Money is the subtitle. It's by Wolf Richter, R-I-C-H-T-E-R. Uh, the headline is, Mega Banks Blow 100% of Earnings on Share Buybacks and Dividends, Crimp Lending, Constrain Economy. That's the headline. And uh, he noted, J.P. Morgan Chase, $2.5 billion. Bank of America, $2.25 billion. Wells Fargo, $1.9 billion. Citigroup, $1.8 billion. Goldman Sachs, $894 billion. Morgan Stanley, $832 billion. U.S. Bank Corp, $450 billion. PNC Financial Services, $371 billion. TD Group U.S. Holdings, $353 billion. Capital One Financial, $349 billion. A total of $11,819,000,000. You with me so far? Excuse me. Eleven. Trillion, eight hundred nineteen billion dollars. Okay. Yeah, because a thousand billion is a trillion. Okay, so eleven trillion dollars. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Um, this is from uh, Wolf Creep, uh, WolfStreet.com, uh, based on the S and P Global Market Intelligence. They could have lended. They they could have increased lending in the United States by a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. And instead, they just pass that money out to their executives. They note in the article, uh, Rick, Wolf Richter notes in the article, the CEO of the top bank on this list has been very vocal about plowing more of the bank's income into shares, buybacks, and dividends while pushing regulators to lower capital requirements. And when the guy who wrote this letter to, to Sherrod Brown, he was the president of the Kansas City Fed and a member of the Fed's op policy setting Federal Open Market Committee from 91 to 2011 through the, Fed, through the financial crisis. J.P. Morgan Chase earned, and, and just looking at the first part of this year, J.P. Morgan Chase earned $26 billion over the, or excuse me, this is, this is the last year. J.P. Morgan Chase earned $26 billion over the four quarters, but it plowed $27 billion, $27.6 billion, or 106% of its income into share buybacks and dividends. If it had retained that income, it could have raised its capital by that amount, and that would have been enough to make an additional $250 billion of loans under current capital rules. So, you know, basically they can loan 10 times what they have in capital. Share buybacks alone amounted to $83 billion, not counting dividends. If banks were to retain this capital, instead of buying their own shares with it, they could have increased commercial and consumer loans by $741 billion. If they cut dividend payments some, they could have boosted their lending by over a trillion dollars. These banks could have done what banks are chartered to do, which is help the economy. Instead, 
they made their executives richer. Something very, very wrong with that. There's a whole lot of other news here I want to get to. Uh, the Black Agenda Report is talking about how they're being censored along with a bunch of progressive websites by Google. I think this is interesting. I don't know quite what to make of it. Um, king, uh, the, uh, the, the king of Saudi Arabia is about to execute, about to murder a bunch of critics of the Saudi government. I want to get into that tonight. Starting tonight, Americans for Tax Reform noted that starting last night with the flipping of the West Virginia governorship, uh, Mr. Mr. Justice has gone from being a Democrat to a Republican, Jim Justice, the governor of uh, West Virginia. Uh, with that, there are now 26 states that are Republican controlled, which is two states short of ratifying a constitutional convention, two states more than they need to start a constitutional convention, to rewrite the Constitution, to make America safe for billionaires again. And what are Apple and Amazon up to with the Chinese? I mean, there's just a Oh, just a, a pile of news out there. And I'm sure that you've got a lot of things on your mind, too. So whatever you'd like to talk about, if anything goes Friday, we will get to it. Anything from lizard people to Republicans, if you can tell the difference. And so we'll be back with your calls and more of the news of the day as we continue through our program today here on Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you and Barbara in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Barbara, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how are you doing? Great. What's up? Uh, you know, I was, I've, I've been watching from January until now with this debate about health care. Mm -hmm. What behoves me about the health care is their study wanted to take health care from the average person that, by the way, Stan, last night I was watching the Virginia, uh, whatever he calls it. And those people standing there don't know that if he takes health care, they're going to lose their health care. They might have a parent at home they have to take care of or a child at home they have to take care of or anything they have to take care of. And they're standing there cheering this guy that wants to take this away from them and the Congress, too. I don't understand it. We pay for their health care, but we're not supposed to have it. It behooves me. Yeah. Yeah. No. AARP is really bad at this because they advertise one of the worst health care companies in the United States is United Health right here in Minnesota. Yeah, that's that's how AARP got to be so wealthy that their their headquarters here in Washington D.C. looks like you're walking into a Saudi palace. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, you know the whole thing is a scam. That's the bad news. The good news is I think Americans are waking up to it. That the banksters are running a scam. The bankster the bankster health insurance companies are running a scam on us. Um, company after company in America now has started their own banking division. You'll remember GM with GMAC. Yeah. And now, you know, half the electronics companies in America, oh, you want to buy something? We'll lease it to you. Yeah, we got a leasing company. It's a bank. Uh, and everybody's making money on money, and nobody's making money making things. And no. and and that's why the United States is in the pits. That's that's why we're doing as poorly as we are, Time. Yeah, well, we're do I mean, we're doing poorly as we are because for some strange reason, I, I have said and I have wondered, I have listen to people talk about Trump is doing this and Trump is doing that. I haven't seen him do anything but run his mouth. Yeah. And another thing that really bothers me on some of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, broadcast shows for the news, they have these people talking about, well, the people's not, don't care about the Russia thing. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. They really, really do. Yeah. I'm scared. I am scared to death because we don't know what the heck is going on behind closed doors. 
Well, it's, this is why we need a 9-11 commission to look into what happened between Trump, the Russians, and, and anybody else, frankly. I, you know, I, I think that when all this comes out, uh, we're going to discover that it had a lot more to do with, with Trump uh, doing money deals with, with billionaire oligarchs who happen to be Russians as opposed to the Russian government. But I, I could be, you know, completely wrong, and I'm, I just would like the truth to come out. I have not seen, and I don't think any of us have seen the real serious details of this stuff, and that's what Robert Mueller is trying to uncover. So, uh, you know, stay tuned, as they say. Barbara, thank you for the call, and thanks for watching. Appreciate John Harbin here with you, and uh, Rialto55 over on Twitter says, Tom, can you please explain the difference between risk corridor payments and the insurance company payments that Trump says he'll withhold? Thank you. Uh, yeah, real quickly, I'll do that, and then we'll pick up your phone calls. Um, the, there are two, there were two big financial pieces. Well, there were many, but they, they, these two things that you're talking about, uh, parts of Obamacare. Uh, with regard to the risk corridors, the insurance companies were asked to take on, you know, millions of new customers and, and with no idea how sick or healthy they are. And, and at, at prices that were determined in advance, which is a prescription for possible disaster. Maybe not, but you just don't know. So Obamacare had this provision called the risk corridors in it that said that any company, any health insurance company that participates in good faith on the Obamacare exchanges, you know, sets an appropriate price. Everybody agrees this is good. Yeah, thank you. You put it on there and you sell your insurance at the end of the year. If that insurance company broke even or made pro a profit, great. If they lost money at that price, then, you know, up to a certain amount of losing money, they could come to the federal government at the end of the year and document their losses. Say, hey, we, you know, we lost, uh, you know, $1.3 billion last year, you know, uh, selling Obamacare on the exchanges. And the federal government would reimburse them for that $1.3 billion. So their risk is limited to the corridor, which is basically to zero, to, to not making a profit. So, you know, with no downside risk, the insurance company said, sure, we'll jump into this enthusiastically and we'll keep prices down. So that's what Marco Rubio blew up in 2015 when he attached a piece of legislation that ended the risk corridor payments to a, a, an omnibus budget bill that, that got passed in 2015, became law in early 2016, and that's why you saw the 25% increases in Obamacare prices in some states, particularly those states that were Republican-run and therefore were not fully compliant with uh, Obamacare. So that's the risk corridors. The payments that Trump is withholding is a whole different thing. And that is basically the, the, the other part of Obamacare is that, say, the, the insurance policy for a family of four, you know, in whatever, family of four in your state costs thousand dollars a month. And if you're making over a certain amount of money, and I think it was like around 60 or 70 or maybe even $80,000 a year, something like that. It's a high end of, you know, the, the up of the upper middle class. If you're making more than that, you're going to pay that thousand dollars a month. But if you're only making $40,000 a year or $30,000 a year, you know, which is kind of closer to the median individual income in the United States, household is around 50. Uh, but that, that is typically two or three workers. But say you're only making $30,000 a year. At that point, the federal government says, you know that $1,000 a month policy? Buy that and we will cover 
say, $400 a month of it. So it's only going to cost you $600 a month. And that balance, that additional $400, we will pay on your behalf directly to the insurance companies. And these are called the, uh, uh, there's an acronym for three-letter acronym, uh, RSAs, RSCs, something like that, risk, risk payment adjustments or risk cost adjustments or whatever they are. There's, a, there's, a, there's an acronym for it. And uh, I should check our chat room because <laughs> Sue is always on top of this stuff. But anyhow, uh, so those payments have nothing to do with the risk corridors. Those, that's the federal government subsidizing you if you're, you know, if you're working, but you're not making more than $50,000, $60,000 a year. That's the federal government subsidizing your insurance. And those payments are made to the insurance companies every month. And typically it's around a billion, $2 billion a month from what I've read in the papers, you know, totaling maybe 10, 12, 15, $20 billion a year. Not a lot of money in the, in, you know, from the point of view of the federal government. I mean, it's like, you know, one day of operation at the Pentagon sort of thing, but, uh, or a couple days maybe at the most. So those are the payments that the federal government issues to the insurance companies every month to cover the Obamacare subsidies so that Obamacare is affordable to low-income working Americans. Not very low-income, that's Medicaid, that's a whole other thing, but Medicaid, this is Obamacare. Now, because those payments are made by the Department of Health and Human Services, or via the Department of Health and Human Services, which is an executive branch agency, the president has the power to say to the head of HHS, no, don't make those payments. Don't, don't send that money out. And that's what he's been threatening to do. And if he does that, instantly all the insurance companies are thrown into a loss situation where they have to jack their prices up if they're going to survive. But they can only jack their prices up once a year. They have to submit these numbers in advance and they go into effect, you know, every November when the, when the new uh, enrollment period happens. And that's the whole uncertainty issue. You, you see all these articles in the, in the press about how uh, the insurance companies are increasing their prices right now, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30%. There's one insurance company in one state that's going up 40%. And when they were asked why, uh, as I recall, it was a vice president of Blue Cross Blue Shield. He said, because, we, because of the uncertainty. Because we don't know if Trump's actually going to pay us. And so we have, to, we have to nail down a price at which we can at least break even if we're going to participate in this business. So if Trump were simply to come out and say, yeah, no, no problem, I'm going to honor the obligations that our government made in the law. If he was simply to say that, everything would be cool. Well, not everything. I mean, the risk corridor still is a big deal. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's hurt all of us. Marco Rubio damaged anybody who's getting Obamacare in his attempt to set up the destruction of Obamacare. And if you, if you want to know the details of this, just Google Marco Rubio, Risk Corridors, New York Times. And you can find the whole thing. Uh, Sue says, finding lots of mentions of risk adjustment. I think they're called risk adjustment payments or, or cost risk CRAs or something like that. But anyhow, those payments. Thank you, Sue, for looking. I appreciate that. Um, so anyhow, in answer to that, uh, that Twitter questioner, that's the deal. Tom Hartman here with you, and I am super pleased to have with us on the line Congressman Keith Ellison. Uh, representing, brilliantly representing the 5th District of Minnesota, but also the Deputy Director of the DNC. Uh, his website, ellison.house.org and democrats.org. You can tweet him at Keith Ellison. 
or at DNC. Congressman, welcome back. Hey, man. Good to be with you. Always. It is. How's it going? Uh, Thanks for just, laying that out on climate change. I mean, this is a horrifying thing. And the problem is that we know the science. We got people like the, the author you were, you were quoting who know the science. What we don't have is the political will. And that is the thing that we've got to set our sights on. Yeah, you're, you're referencing during when our commercial stations are doing the news at the top of the hour, we play a uh, book report uh, for five minutes for our non-commercial stations, and they were listening to that, and you're talking about, I was reading a, a book that I'd written about climate change, and that, yeah, it's, it's important stuff. Um, I, hey, I see that you, uh, uh, you've got two pieces here. I've got printed out in front of me. One is uh, from the Minnesota Post. Uh, 10 years before bridge collapse, we still need to raise public investment in the nation's infrastructure. And the other yep. was, uh, want to see, from the Washington Post, want to see who Republicans care about, check their anti-poor budget. Uh, would yeah. you care to riff on either or both of those? Well, you know, they're kind of related, aren't they? Um, the fact is the federal government should do everything it can to boost good jobs. And, um, but that's just part of it. Actually, investing in our nation's infrastructure not only boosts employment, but it also saves lives. About 11 years ago, the Minnesota, Minnesota I-35 bridge collapsed into the Mississippi River. It, it certainly was a call to action for us in Minnesota, but it was a call to action for the whole country because, you know, you've got uh, bridges in critical stages all over the country. And not only that, water systems. I mean, look at Flint. What is that but an infrastructure disaster? Mm. And if we had the bright and proper investment, you could not just you could not only put people to work, you could make things safer for people. We lost 13 people when the bridge collapsed. 100 people fell into the Mississippi River. Um, you know, people had the people who survived had spinal fractures. Oh. Uh, horrifying. Uh, you know, you fall 65 feet from a bridge. You know, that might give you a little bit of phobia. Um, yeah. And so we'll never forget it. But uh, that's what that's all about. You know, we've got to invest in infrastructure. Not only put people to work, but also save lives. On the other one, <clears throat> look, Republicans are going to get up and declare that they're for the working people. They're going to get up there and declare that they're for working Americans and that they care so much. Fine. Let's see who really means it. What's the best place to find out? The budget, right? Pull out the budget. You show me your budget, and I'll show you what you care about. And they care about war, war-making, uh, and the police state. And we care about infrastructure, investing in people, education, and addressing climate. And that's very simple, you know. Yeah. Uh, the the progressive budget, the people's budget, is something we're incredibly proud of. Even though I'm not even the co-chair anymore, I am the uh, I'm still an active member in the Progressive Caucus. We're ably led by Mark Pocan and Raul Grijalva. And uh, but our people's budget is something we hold up as a, as a as a budget that people can get behind. And it's important stuff. It's it's great stuff. And you're going to be at uh, Netroots Nation this weekend? Yeah, man. I'm going to be at Netroots Nation. We're going to be talking about the future of our country. We're going to be talking about the, America's role in the world. And how is it that we can move forward uh, given this uh, Trump and Trumpism? And again, it's not about one person doing bad things in the White House. It's the whole environment that he creates. And how do we envision another kind of America where people are supported, included, where our government actually is concerned about working people and where we're standing up for the rights of working people. And that's really kind of an alternative vision we're going to put forward. We believe we're right. Yeah. And I think that we're, we're going to be real clear at Red Netroots. 
And if I, if I may respectfully add, um, given what Robert Mueller's up to, we might mm. want to start including Mike Pence in every denunciation of Donald Trump, because he's every bit as bad and in many ways worse, particularly when it comes to women's issues and religion. And you know, uh, I, he may well be the president of the United States soon. Well, I agree 100 um, percent. Mike Pence, I serve with Mike Pence. There's nothing good coming from Mike Pence. You know, he had to jump on that VP ticket because he did such a lousy job as governor of Indiana. People were on to him. He was going to have a lot of trouble. Uh, but, you know, Mike, Mike Pence is uh, much more smooth than Donald Trump uh, and, and, and knows how to work the levers of Congress better than Donald Trump. And, I'll, and I'm going to tell you, I have no evidence for this, but just something in my gut tells me that Mike Pence was always the insurance policy for Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, and so, you know, here we are, you know. Um, but, you know, but do, I, I just wanted to say this, this, the next issue coming up that we all have to be focused on is this tax thing. You know, mm. they are going to try to starve the government and dramatically reduce services. Everything mm. from basic research for your mom's Parkinson's to, you know, food and uh, to the safety network that people rely on when, you know, times are tough. Uh, they're going to they're gonna go straight at it. And by the way, they're not going to ever tolerate an increase in taxes, although that's exactly what we need. And we need to really start, Tom, and I'd love your take on this. We need to stop making tax a dirty word. I mean, the Republicans act like tax is the worst thing ever, and you can never even talk about raising them. But the truth is taxes are just the dues we pay to live in a civilized society. Yes, and I believe to whom much is given, much is expected, and I don't see how a hedge fund manager should pay a lower tax rate than the secretary, which is exactly what's going on now. And I don't see why Wall Street can expect us to bail them out, but they don't want to even toss in uh, with a financial transactions tax to help us out a high roller tax, which would make a lot of sense. You know, and I think a polluter there should be a polluter welfare. There should be a polluter tax. You pollute, you pay more. Yep. And me and Bernie Sanders got an in polluter welfare act uh, bill that ta that strips away the subsidies for these guys. That's great. Well, my my take on it is I agree with Keith Ellison. <laughs> you, know, you said it. We are you one. Said, you said yeah. it really, 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 really well. Uh, you want to take some phone calls? Yeah, man. Let's okay. talk. Okay, let's let's hit. Uh, let me hit this break, and we'll pick up phone calls just on the other side of it. Uh, we are talking today with Keith Ellison. He's with us for the half hour. Congressman Keith Ellison representing the 5th District of Minnesota, the deputy director of the DNC, Democrats.org, Ellison.House.org, and you can tweet him at Keith Ellison. We'll be right back with your calls for Congressman Ellison. And welcome back. Bill watching Free Speech TV in Fredericksburg, Virginia. You're on the air with Congressman Keith Ellison. Good afternoon, gentlemen. It's a pleasure speaking with you both. Um, the question that I had was around affirmative action. And um, one of the things that, that's puzzled me, uh, when you take a look at the argument against affirmative action, it's about um, people not being qualified for certain positions. And the problem that comes to mind is, if you take a look at the cabinet, Donald Trump's cabinet, Betsy DeVos has never stepped uh, foot in a classroom yet she's the Secretary of Education. And you take a look at Rick Perry, um, a C student, and he's at the head of the Department of Energy. Now, by no stretch of the imagination can these people be considered qualified. 
So how do you square that argument that affirmative action needs to be done away with? I'm really curious about that. Yeah. Well, neither one of us have a good answer for you. I mean, <laughs> we believe that we, we, we want to create an America where everybody feels they have an opportunity. But while you're on the subject, let's talk about Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner's father dropped several, dropped several million dollars in Harvard. Uh, his, there's, there's articles out there that you should read about how Jared was, was not thought to be uh, quote-unquote Harvard material when he uh, got out of high school. This is according to his teachers, not me. Uh, and yet, you know, daddy drops $2 million and all of a sudden he's going there. His teachers reported being surprised. Right. So you take something like legacy. You know, why is it that affirmative action for people who already have tremendous privilege? You take something, and, and then, you know, let's be honest, we had affirmative action before affirmative action. It was affirmative action for white people, yep. you know? Um, you know, you, you just, you, you, I mean, my mother, when she went to college at Xavier University in New Orleans, she could never dream of going to LSU at that time. You know, she just couldn't do it. They wouldn't let her in. Her, her birth certificate said Negro on it, and that was all they needed to know. So, look, I believe that one of the most important things working people of America need to do is to create solidarity around race. One of the ways we can do it is to just say, you know, 250 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow, 300 years of state-sponsored suppression of African Americans, maybe we should make sure some of them have a shot. That's all it's saying. We've only had about 60 years of any other system other than state-sponsored and sanctioned suppression of blacks and browns. So what is, is it the worst thing in the world? And by the way, here's the thing about, uh, about, about Sessions. Sessions is no big fan of working-class white people. He never has been. All he's doing right now, all he's doing is trying to make white people believe that it is black people and brown working class people who are threatening their livelihood. When this is not anywhere close to being true. Why don't they go talk to this guy, Steve Mnuchin, the foreclosure king, who literally threw 30,000 people out of their homes in foreclosure. Foreclosure caused more problems to a neighborhood than, than, than a whole lot of problems. So I guess that's where I'm coming from on it. This is a thing designed to divide people. We should be about inclusion and solidarity. And that's where I stand on it. Amen. Yeah. Well said. Congressman Keith Ellison taking your calls. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Ellison. Welcome back. Keith Ellison is on the line. Congressman Keith Ellison on the line taking your calls for about the next, uh, what, seven, eight minutes, something like that. Uh, and yeah. uh, Marlon in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, Marlon, you're on the air with Congressman Ellison. Hi, Tom. Hi, Keith. Uh, hey. I, uh, I think that they're going to shove this uh, net neutrality down our throats or blowing up of net neutrality, no matter what we say or do. Um, I was wondering if a way to combat that would be to for governorships, local or uh, townships, whatever, to say to these companies, you cannot provide your service in our community or state or whatever, unless if you operate under the rules of net neutrality as a way of combating that. Hmm. Or have municipally owned ones like in Chattanooga. Congressman, your thoughts? Right. 
You know what? Um, I I like the idea, but the main thing I like about it is that you're thinking creatively about what we're going to do. I mean, here's here's my point. Uh, you know, you have a great idea. There are other great ones, just like uh, what's going on in Chattanooga. But the real point is that we can protect net neutrality if we fight hard to do it, if we put in a maximal effort, if we reach out all across this country and say, people, we got to stand together and be active. I like your creative idea. Let's get 25 more great ideas about how we protect net neutrality because you are, your essential point is correct. They're coming after it because this is a way for them to restrict access to speech and communication. And never, never doubt that it was government money. It was public investment that started the Internet. It was not these big multinational uh, um, uh, Internet service providers. And also never doubt that, look, you know, the the Internet and and coding was started by, like, people on the political left who were trying to create space. It has been monetized and commercialized by some entities. We've got to push back on this. Let me tell you, this Internet issue you raise is as key as the healthcare one. It is exactly the fight we need to be in right now. Right. Plus, they're still using public rights of way to get the Internet, you know, through across the country, into our homes. It's all public rights of way. So arguably it should be regulatable. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not unlike telephones. So good one. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. hey, if I could just say this, cause I know you're a great reader, Tom, and I was one of the many things I love about your show and you, and thank you. There's a book called move fast. And, uh, there's a book called move fast and break things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, uh, how Facebook, Google, and Amazon cornered the cultural uh, cornered culture and undermined democracy by a guy named Jonathan Taplin. It's about fighting market concentration and the re- and how we need to revive uh, antitrust legislation. So, just for folks looking for a book on this, uh, how uh, move fast and break things, how Facebook, Google, and Amazon cornered culture and undermined democracy. Jonathan Taplin, Great. not I a just, bad guy to get on the show. I All just right. wrote it down. I'm gonna have to check it out. Sam yeah. in Englewood, New Jersey. You're on the air with Congressman Ellison. Hi, Tom. Hi, Keith. Thanks for taking. Hey, uh, my question is regarding what is Democrats' long-term strategy to win the hearts and minds of people who are supporting Trump at the moment, uh, voting against their interests. Um, I can see a scenario where this whole investigation just says, "Well, all he had uh, done was some sort of a financial, uh, you know, deal that is, you know, a little gray." I can see a situation where the supporters will essentially just give him a pat on the hand and say, you know, he didn't know any better. He was just a business. So I'm wondering how can Democrats going into the long-term sort of planning uh, understand how to present this information and how to really impress upon these people that they're essentially voting against their interests in the country. Look, the long-term game of the Democratic Party is to, in, is to make politics about people. Politics about community, politics about building relationships between neighbors, a government which is of, by, and for the people. That's the goal. And that means that we've got to go to every door, we've got to go to every senior center, every VFW hall, every house of worship for anybody and those that don't go. And we've got to really engage our people. We've got to say that things like data analytics and modeling might be tools, but they're no replacement for building a coherent relationship between one person and another. And our messaging needs to start with the idea that you need to make popular what is necessary, which is building community. 
as opposed to try to figure out what's popular by just pandering to people based on a poll. And that is where we got to go with this. Politics is about people, not polls. It's about community. It's about relationship. And we need to go to people and listen to people and build relationship with them in order to have a government which is of, by, and for the people. That is my concept. If somebody has a better one, let me know. I think that's brilliant. David in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Ellison. Wow, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have an idea that I think is fundamental to all the issues we discuss because it all comes down to the ballot. And I think that you need Chuck Schumer to have a little bit of a backbone. But with the debt ceiling increase coming up, I don't think we should default. I think we should only allow it to be raised maybe a month at a time but make it contingent on a voting, restoring the Voting Rights Act and also adding some legislation that requires paper ballots with, hand, with, with eyeball counts that need to be certified on every election. And, and the only way to make politicians responsive to the voter is to make sure the votes are counted. Congressman? Good ideas. Let's keep talking. Uh, I think that it's, uh, I, I love the fact that he's thinking about uh, what we need to do to restore the Voting Rights Act. Another good book out there. Give us the ballot by, uh, uh, by uh, oh my, but I can't call his name. Ira, oh man. I'm, I'm having a mental block, but it's a great book called Give Us the Ballot uh, and uh, by a brilliant uh, young writer. Uh, who, yeah, I know who it is, too, and I can't remember his name either. His yeah, last yeah name. he's an awesome dude, man. Somebody on there knows. Something like a Chernatov or something? like. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I'm mixing uh, him up yeah. with somebody else. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah anyway. give us the ballot. So, yeah. so uh, Congressman, we have just, just about a minute left, which isn't really enough time to, to you know, give somebody an opportunity to ask a question and you give an answer. So in the, in the, in the, in the, oh, Ari Berman wrote the book. I'm, I'm sorry. Ari Berman. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's my man. And, and uh, you know, in the, in the middle block. Yeah, in the half minute or so we have left, what should we be watching in the news and, and what should we be doing when we call our members of Congress over the next week? You got to make sure that we have a fair, uh, that this tax debate goes right. You got to tax the wealthiest people who have benefited the most from deregulation and tax cuts over the last 50 years. You cannot let them get away with starving the government. That's the name of the game for the next period. Number two, congratulations on the health care fight. Use that as inspiration for what you might be able to do next. Third, this Internet fight is about suppressing and dividing people. They want to make it more expensive, so get involved in the Internet fight. We can win it. It's our, it's our, uh, it's our uh, airways anyway. Uh, and those are the fights that we got to be in. Get ready for your Labor Day picnic. Celebrate Labor on Labor Day. It's coming up in a few weeks. Don't let Labor go by without celebrating Labor you want to figure out a good example, the workers, the UAW workers trying to organize the Nissan plant. You are listening to the they Tom need Hartman you. program yeah, called yeah. 202-808-9925. Brilliantly said, Congressman Keith Ellison, thanks so much for being with us, sir. Anytime, bud. Anytime. Good talking Anytime. with you. you. Uh, and you can tweet him at Keith Ellison, ellison.house.org. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. A couple of news stories here I wanted to go through and share with you, and then we'll get back to Anything Goes Friday and your calls. Jeff Sessions uh, last night gave a speech about how uh, he is tripling the number of investigations into leaks. Uh, principally, you know, obviously the, the White House is freaked out about this. Yesterday was the day that the transcripts of 
of Donald Trump's discussions with uh, uh, Mexican President Pino Nieto and or Pino Nieta and uh, Australian President Malcolm Turnbull were both leaked. And, you know, where did those come from? Who got them? Uh, you'll recall President Obama prosecuted more leakers than any pre than, than all other presidents in the history of the United States combined. And clearly, Trump wants to do even more than that. I don't think this is a good thing. And I think that we need a whistleblower protection act that protects both leakers and reporters who who accept and publish those leaks when those leaks can be demonstrated to be in the public interest. And, uh, you know, it, it, it concerns me tremendously that this is happening. Uh, this looks to me like the beginning of the death of the media. You know, the, the media will simply become lapdogs. I mean, not to say that they're not already to a large extent. You watch the Sunday shows, Republican senators come on, they lie through their teeth and nobody challenges them. I mean, they're just now starting to challenge Trump on all his lies. But uh, when Jeff Sessions says this, he says, one of the things we are reviewing, are doing is reviewing the policies affecting media subpoenas. Now, when you're subpoenaed, if they imp impanel a grand jury and you're subpoenaed, you know, basically you've got no choice. You're going to testify. If they, if they grant you immunity, you are going to testify or you are going to jail. And uh, this is scary stuff. I am concerned about as a member of the media and as a consumer of the media, and we're all consumers of the media, we should all be frankly frightened by this kind of behavior coming out of the White House. I was opposed to doing it. I was opposed to it when the Obama administration was doing it. I'm opposed to it when the Trump administration is doing it. This is not a partisan issue. This is a, a, a government transparency issue. And government transparency is something that this country was built on. It's the core. It's a core animating principle for the United States. I mentioned earlier Black Agenda Report. The, the uh, Black Agenda Report, uh, Bruce Dixon is the editor, and he wrote an op-ed or an article you can find over there at Black Agenda Report titled, It's Getting Real, Google Censors the Left and Us. And he writes, uh, conclusive evidence exists that Google is suppressing public access to socialist and left-wing websites, almost certainly including the Black Agenda Report. And Black Black Agenda Report is, by all accounts, the only black-owned, run, and oriented left website so targeted. And then he goes through all the other ones that are not. Um, he says it's just a matter of time. Uh, convincing evidence has emerged that Google is actively suppressing public access. Now, here's how it happened. In the, in the, uh, in the wake of Hillary Clinton losing the election, and actually it was even before that. This was in September. Um, it, in the wake of all the, the so-called fake news stories that were rolling out toward the end of last year, a group called the First Draft Coalition, which was Google, Facebook, Twitter, New York Times, Washington Post, BuzzFeed News, Agence France Press, and CNN, got together and they said, let's put together a list of websites that we will never source from. We're not, you know, these, these websites are known to carry fake news. And, you know, in principle, it sounds like a good idea. You know, you, you put InfoWars on there, Alex Jones's site or, or Breitbart. I mean, you know, there's or, or, or the, you know, the clearly fake news ones, the ones out of out of, uh, you know, the old uh, uh, Eastern European states and stuff like that. You know, where, you know, was that kid in uh, was it Moldova or whatever, wherever he was, who was 
making ten thousand dollars a month running fake news stories that uh, you know that he was selling advertising on. Say that again. No, it wasn't Serbia. It was it was one of the M countries. But in any case, um, so you, you can understand the logic behind it. But what happened was they came up with a list of crazy far right sites, and then it was like, okay, we've got to have balance. This is this phony balance thing, right? You know, it's like if you if you're going to have somebody saying there's global warming, you got to have a climate science denier on, even though 99, well, 100 percent of climate scientists who don't work for fossil fuel companies agree climate change is real and it's being caused by people. Uh, it's not even 97 percent anymore. It's 100 percent of of peer reviewed, published climate scientists who do not work for fossil fuel industries. So what? Macedonia. Thank you, Chris. Chris. Chris looks it up while I'm talking. Brilliant. Um, but so so they they you know they came up with a bunch of right wing sites that they're not going to list because they're actively engaging in fake news and some just BS sites, some nonsense sites that they're going to block. But then it was like, well, we got to block a bunch of left wing sites, too. Right. So this is what they blocked and how much their traffic dropped, according to this article by Ben Dixon in uh, or Bruce Dixon, excuse me, in Black Agenda Report. Uh, the World Socialist website fell by 67 percent. Alternet.org fell by 63%. I publish an alternate, you know, pretty much every week. It's a brilliant site. One of my favorites. Um, consor- uh, globalresearch.ca, that's a Canadian site, fell by 62%. Consortium News fell by 47%. Socialist Worker by 47%. Media Matters. Media Matters for America. David Brock's site. I mean, you don't get more kind of mainstream Democratic Party than Media Matters. Most of what they do is point out the lies on Fox. They, they were listed as a fake news source. Their traffic fell by 42% on Google. This is all, you know, Google simply no longer, no longer indexing these sites, or at least many of the articles on these sites. Common Dreams fell by 37%. International Viewpoint, 36%. Democracy Now! fell 36%. Democracy Now! Amy Goodman's site, probably the best news site in the United States, fell by 36%. WikiLeaks fell by 30%. Truthout, another site that I write for that has great content. They've got two of my books on there you can read for free. Rebooting the American Dream and, and Unequal Protection. Uh, Truthout fell by 25%. Counterpunch fell by 21%. And The Intercept fell by 19%. These are not fake news sites. There's something really wrong here. And finally, the last thing I wanted to, to, to bring up, uh, just to toss on the table, and then we can talk about it for the rest of the hour, Two stories back to back. Number one, the Washington Post. Emily Rohala on August 2nd wrote an article titled Apple, Amazon Help China Curb the Use of Anti-Censorship Tools. Now, that sounds like a good thing until you realize that it is curb anti. It's a double negative, right? You could rewrite that headline as Amazon and Apple help China censor the Internet. And what they're doing is they're pulling VPNs. VPNs are virtual private networks. With a VPN on, your computer talks to another computer someplace else, typically in another country, over a, 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 an encrypted line so that nobody, so your ISP can't listen in. And so the Chinese government can't listen in. So if you've got, an, if you've got a VPN on your iPhone or on your computer and in, you're in China, and the other end of that is in Los Angeles, then all China sees is gibberish. They have no idea what websites you're visiting. And you're actually connected to an internet portal in Los Angeles, not in China, even though you're in China. This is how VPN works. 
And there's all kinds of VPN products in the Apple store. And uh, Amazon sells VPN products. Not anymore in China, though. They are bowing down and kissing the butts of the Chinese dictators. Meanwhile, Benjamin Haas in Hong Kong. Now, this was back on the 10th of July. This, uh, this story has been sitting on my desk now for three weeks. Um, but uh, you know, I'm waiting for <laughs> to dig through the pile here. We finally got down to it. A Chinese activist who was arrested after investigating working conditions at a factory making Ivanka Trump branded shoes says he believes the connection to the U.S. president's daughter led to his detention. This, uh, this is amazing. The guy's name is Hua Haifeng. And he told The Guardian, uh, first of all, he had, he, he's a, a labor activist. He goes around and inspects factories. And he's exposed a lot of, you know, dirty dealing and bad employment, bad, bad, uh, you know, employer practices, you know, maltreatment, mistreatment of employees in China, in factories across China. And when he went to this particular factory, he had no idea that they were making Ivanka Trump's stuff. So he thought it was just another, hey, I'm going to expose another factory and something that he does. And the Chinese tolerate that. They've, been, they've let him get away with it because, you know, hey, you know, they're getting a lot of flack from their, from their employees, from, from workers in China. They're trying to raise standards of living. You know, it's the, this is the direction ultimately that they have to go anyway. And they know it. The government knows it. But this was Ivanka Trump's stuff. And they want things from Donald. They, in particular, don't want him putting tariffs on Chinese-made goods. So he shows up at this factory, and he gets dragged off. He gets arrested. He says, when I was first taken away by the police, I couldn't understand why I was being arrested. But once I was released and reconnected with the outside world, I think it was probably because of the factory's connection to Ivanka. He didn't know about Ivanka's connection to this factory until after he got out of being arrested and looked it up on the Internet. Um, he said, before I arrived at the factory, I didn't even know Ivanka had a clothing brand. And it wasn't until I was released, I knew this brand was related to the daughter of the U.S. president. Uh, the uh, uh, Benjamin Haas in Hong Kong writes for The Guardian. He adds, the allegations echo similar charges of low wages and anti-union intimidation. The Guardian founded a factory making Ivanka Trump products in Indonesia. So the Chinese cracking down Hua said his seven-year-old daughter cried when she saw him, first saw him for the first time since he came out of detention. My family missed me. He said this was very scary for them. This guy getting arrested because how dare he look into the conditions, the workers' conditions at the factory making Ivanka Trump stuff. So the question, if we're supporting Apple and Amazon, in supporting China, we're oppressing their people, what has happened to American values? What has happened to American companies promoting American values? American companies helping promote American values around the world. Have we just said to hell with it? It's all about the money? Apparently we have, and I think that's wrong. Welcome back. Uh, oh, there I am. Ha. Okay. Oh, one other story I want to share with you real quickly, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. This is outrageous. This is a, an editorial in today's New York Times or yesterday's New York Times uh, opinion page by the editorial board itself, the headline, an ally is set to execute critics, will Mr. Trump be silent? And uh, it starts out by the editorial board. Uh, Mujtaba El Swikat was a bright 17-year-old student on his way to visit Western Michigan University when he was arrested at King Fahd Airport in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in 2012. Since then, he has been in Saudi custody, subject to torture, including beatings so severe his shoulder was broken in order to extract confessions 
that sealed his fate, condemned to death, likely by beheading. Saudi Arabia's Supreme Court has upheld his death sentence, as well as those of 13 other Saudi citizens tried with him, including a disabled man and two who were juveniles when they were sentenced. After a mass trial that made a mockery of international standards of due process, now the only person who can prevent these barbarous executions is King Salman, who must ratify the death sentences. As is the case with many members of Saudi Arabia's Shiite minority condemned to death in recent years, Mr. Swaikot's crime was attending political protests in the heady months following the Arab Spring in 2011. And so this is, this is a kid who simply showed up at a protest calling for democracy in Saudi Arabia. Calling for democracy in Saudi Arabia can cause you to have your head cut off. Let me say that again. Calling for democracy in public in Saudi Arabia can, call, can lead to you having your head cut off. This is Donald Trump's best bud. This is, this, is, this is our best bud. This is the country that sent us 17 hijackers on 9-11. This is the country that we've been buying oil from forever. This is the country that has been exporting Wahhabism, the most radical form of Sunni Islam that, that preaches violence and jihad all over the world. Saudi Arabia, the, 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 where, where the, the core of this stuff is coming from, and we constantly let them do this. Uh, and not, you know, I mean, it's a sovereign nation. It's not like we have a lot of control over them. But you know, we should reward them by selling them billions of dollars worth of weapons and supporting their, their brutal war in, in uh, Yemen right now, 600,000 people starving to death, massive cases of, of uh, uh, I believe it's, no, it's not malaria. It's, uh, uh, what is it, vibrato, uh, cholera. Uh, cholera vibrato is the name of the bacteria. Um, uh, 600,000 cases, 500,000 cases of cholera. I mean, you, you, children looking like stick figures right now in Yemen. There are children dying as we speak, and the Saudis have been dropping cluster bombs and all kinds of American-made munitions on them. And, and, and we're just sitting here oblivious to it all. No news coverage, no nothing. I mean, you know, if if uh, you know if Ireland was doing this, if Russia was doing this, if if uh, if Iran was doing this, we would be all over it. I mean, it, how many countries behead people who call for democracy? Well, Saudi Arabia and China—they don't behead you, but they imprison you, and maybe they'll sell your kidneys. I mean, and and these are our buddies. I, you know, we really need a serious rethink of our entire foreign policy uh, shtick here in the United States. Because what we're doing is, in, in so many ways, so antithetical to the core values on which this country was founded, or at least that we espoused at our, following, at our founding and that we should be following. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 